are principles in the Old Testament narratives because they come from the Father, so of course there are, but we do need to be mindful, however, of the reality. When we think about that, when we're trying to draw principles out of the Old Testament Scriptures, we have to remember that most of that was written to Israel under their own covenant. And where we are now, it is not apples to apples. They, they, it was on them to keep themselves in that covenant. You and I are not under a covenant like that. So although there are principles in the Old Testament narratives because they are stories that God has inspired, and the primary purpose the Bible gives to these stories is to point us to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible tells us the Old Testament is doing, and so we need to adjust our approach to them accordingly. We're, we're, I, we talk about this a lot on Wednesday nights. We're not free to use the Bible as we see fit. Most of the Old Testament narratives create a need. They're begging for someone who can fulfill or who can reconcile or can complete, etc. And one of the ways the Old Testament points us to Christ is by way of contrast, by creating a longing or showing a need for something better. And so we'll look at such a text like that tonight in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But first, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Lord, I thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that it is he who would speak to our hearts tonight, to all of us, Father. I pray, Lord, that we would hunger to see him. I pray, Father, that you would reveal him to us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we open this book together each week. Lord, please be with me. Please help me, God, and please help everyone to hear. I ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So let me read. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you can get there, 1 Samuel chapter 2, right after Ruth, Judges Ruth, First and Second Samuel. We begin in chapter 2, verse 12. And I'm going to read to start with down through verse 26. 1 Samuel 2, 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So what we just read there, what they were doing was sin. Okay, That's not what they were supposed to be doing. Verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. It's such a sweet thing, isn't it, that, that Hannah did this for him. Verse 20, Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, 
And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. These were worthless, horrible young men. Okay, That's what they did. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now that's a whole other sermon. You see, the Bible's going to chip away at this exalted notion we have of free will until it's gone. Now, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So during the time of the judges, which was not really a good time in Israel, prior to the installation of Saul as king of Israel, a man named Samuel was born. And as was so often the case in God's oversight of Abraham's descendants, he was born to a mother who had previously been barren, this woman we read about named Hannah. She was married to a man named Elkanah, who had another wife named Peninnah, who would provoke and irritate Hannah about not being able to have children, and, and probably mainly because Elkanah loved Hannah more than Peninnah. And it's, 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 um, it's actually one of the funniest moments in scripture when when hannah is weeping because she can't have children and elkanah who is married two women says to her why are you crying why do you need children am i not enough for you is is the great elkanah not enough for you that you can't have kids it's it's just hilarious because i think hannah would say no not not really no um but the lord heard the desperate prayers of hannah a faithful servant of god who pledged to give her child to the lord if god would give her one and he did Right, She gave birth to Samuel uh, when a man named Eli, who was the second to last judge before Samuel, was the high priest of Israel at Shiloh. Hannah keeps her word, and when Samuel is finished nursing, she takes him to the temple, commits him to the Lord's service under, under Eli, and after she takes him, she bursts out in a song that beautifully prefigures the song of Mary, after she hears that she'll give birth to the Messiah in Luke 1, Hannah's song here at the beginning of beginning of 1 Samuel is so much like Mary's. And then the first part of that story ends here with Hannah and Elkanah going home and Samuel ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest as he grows up. And it's at this point that the story picks up where we read tonight. And as you can see, there's a major issue in Israel during this time. A, an urgent one, to say the least. Now... The immediate focus up to this point, we could say, after what we've just read, is on parenting. Maybe. right? We're, we're presented with two sets of parents in the text. The contrast is very sharp. Two sets of parents and their children. You have Eli and his worthless sons. That's how it starts in verse 12. And then you have Hannah and her little boy Samuel, who is ministering to the Lord. And there's an obvious contrast between them, isn't there? It couldn't be more obvious. The story of Eli's sons is almost a manual on bad parenting. right? He, he knew they were doing these things. He was well aware of it. He hasn't done anything to stop it. And we don't know, but it begs the question, how had it gotten to this point? How did these boys become men like this? Sometimes a parent is just on the hook when their children are overly rebellious. But then the story of Hannah and Elkanah is like a model of good parenting. They committed him 
to the Lord, and Hannah kept her vow. Samuel was a good little boy. He was a dutiful one as he grew. So we could make the text about parenting if we rushed it, right? If, if, if we rushed it, you know, bad parents let their kids, uh, they let their kids eat too much. They don't take serving the Lord seriously. They don't pass those habits on to their children. And maybe as we so often do in our approach to the Old Testament here, we could just substitute the church for Shiloh. Just make it, you know, instead of it being Shiloh, make it the church and warn parents with this text so that it feels more relatable. You have to get your kids in church. You have to teach them how serious it is to serve the Lord and they gotta show up when the doors are open. You gotta teach them good eating habits and Instead of ending up like Samuel, if you don't do that, your kids are going to end up like Eli's sons, right? Or whatever. Something along those lines. Scripture does speak and teach about the value and importance of raising our children in the truth of God. Which, by the way, though, is summarized in the gospel, not in the law. But we would moralize this text if we do that here. We'd moralize it. I would propose that the main point of the text isn't about parenting. The main point of the text here is not about getting our kids to be more active or to eat better or more involved in church, although none of those things are bad. It's not what I mean. But we can't miss the primary point of the passage here. Possible applications can never overshadow the primary point of the text. Possible applications can never overshadow the primary point of the text. We don't want to miss the richness of God's Word here, of what we're seeing open up for us. If we read through this section in 1 Samuel a few more times, we might realize that the primary concern overshadowing this text is not an issue about parenting at all. The issue here is the holiness of God. The context of this passage is about God and how the terrible leadership of God's people makes a mockery of God Himself in their eyes. The problem in the text is that God is not being properly worshipped. He's being belittled by these priests. That's the way Eli sees it in verse 25. That's what he sees the major problem to be. The priests of Eli's day, the ones charged with acting as a go-between for God and his people, they were extortioners. They were extortioners. They were horrible men. For one thing, they took quality meat from the Israelites who sacrificed at Shiloh to feed themselves. In Leviticus 7 and Deuteronomy 18, well before this, God had instructed that the priest could take the animal's breast, the animal's right thigh, shoulders, and internal organs, along with the meat from its head. That was it. But at Shiloh, when the priest's servant stuck his fork in the pot, he gave whatever stuck to the fork, which would be the better meat, to the priest. So they not only took the best meat from people, they were disregarding God. I mean, they, they were, you understand what, what they were doing to the women who would come and serve at the tent. Could you imagine a more grievous thing to be doing from the position of priest to the people of Israel? And they did it to all the Israelites who came there. This was a widespread sin. But moreover in verse 15, in addition to that, the fat portion of the sacrifice was supposed to be burned on the altar. It was not supposed to be eaten. That's Leviticus 7 and 17. But at Shiloh, the attendant took the meat with the fat portion took the Lord's portion of the sacrifice for himself. That's what he was doing. The, the gall of it is crazy. And if any worshipers complained about that or questioned that, they're threatened with physical violence. Okay, These were the priests of Israel in Eli's day. 
They took advantage of the people. They threatened them. They abused them. They bettered themselves at their expense. And if we were to keep digging in 1 Samuel, you'll begin to see the idea, the motif of replacement within God's family keep appearing. The text brings Samuel in at precisely this point in the narrative because he's the alternative to Eli's sons for leading the worship of God. That's what's before us in the text. God's will is not being carried out because His word has been disregarded. So it's almost as if the text is saying to us through the story, nevertheless, even though this situation is horrible and looks hopeless, there's another man, there's a little boy here that's growing up that God is raising up to lead. That's the immediate context of the story. That's its purpose in the scope of 1 Samuel. The problem, though, is when you when you pull all the way out, that won't solve the problem completely, will it? Samuel won't completely fix the problem in Israel with priests who take advantage of God's people at this level. Why? Samuel will eventually die. We see this all through the Old Testament. We have these little glimpses of people who rise up and they look really good. They look really good. And our mind goes all the way back to Genesis when um, when the, the promise, you know, the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And, and we begin to see men and it's like, maybe it's going to be them. And then we realize, no, it's not. They, they all keep dying. They keep sinning. They keep failing. Samuel, we don't really read too much about his failures or his sins, but he does die. So even Samuel, this one God is raising up now, will not be permanent. And so Israel is always going to be in danger of being led by priests who would hurt them. And they did. And long after Samuel, they continued to hurt the people. By the time Hosea prophesied, for example, the priests, Hosea says, were like gangs who lie in wait for man. That's Hosea 6.9. So we cannot miss what the Holy Spirit is emphasizing in the text. We, we cannot reduce God's Word to nothing more than principles for godly living. And if we do that in First Samuel, for example, we end up completely omitting what? Christ as the perfect and final replacement for a failed and temporary priesthood for God's people. That's what we'll miss. When Eli told his sons that God forgave when we sinned against another, but there was no one to mediate for us if we sin against Him, that is what makes the text relevant, if you will, to us. Because what are we supposed to do? Right? Who's going to mediate for us? Do you see what the text asks? If we are dependent on other human beings who have the same nature we do to intercede for us, to mediate for us to God, we're hopeless and our sins will not be forgiven. In Hebrews 10.4, even more so though, what do we find out? We discover that These priests, even if they were men of integrity, like Samuel, who didn't hurt the people, they could pile up sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. No matter how much blood was spilled, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It's a huge predicament here. First Samuel gets at the heart of not just Israel's desperate need then for a permanent and godly priest who will never fail, who can mediate for them, but our need for a priest like that. All of us for a priest like that. Why? Where am I in this text? I've sinned against God. I'm one of the ones who sins against God. So the story serves to highlight who He is 
and what He has done. Let me read verses 27 through 36. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You see, that's what's happening here. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. Is it Samuel? And he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Couldn't be Samuel. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So rather than leaving us in despair and hopelessness then, God made a promise for a faithful priest that will do what is according to his heart and his mind, which is what? What is God's heart and God's mind? What do we find as the Bible unfolds and Jesus comes? He will provide full forgiveness and acceptance forever for all who come to Him. So that's what the story is doing. It's highlighting who He is and what He has done. It's begging the question, what kind of priest do we have now? Who's our priest now? Will He extort us? No. For His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Will he withhold what God has desired us to have? No. For in him we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He withholds nothing. Ephesians 1, 3. Will he disregard God and lead us astray? No. Because not only did Jesus say he could do nothing by himself, but only what he saw the Father doing in John five nineteen. But when the hour for which the Father had sent Him finally came, what was Jesus' priority? Father, glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. This was the passion of Jesus. John 17.1 Will He threaten us when we don't understand His ways? No, a bruised reed He will not break. Isaiah 42, Matthew 12.20 And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall trouble or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. That the, the beautiful thing about that little list in Romans 8 is that <clears throat> when you get halfway through it, you think, well, he didn't mention what I deal with. Right? He, he didn't, he said, neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth. He didn't say my thing. So then Peter says, or Paul says, nor anything else in all creation. Just so you know you're covered, beloved. That includes all our struggles, all our misunderstandings, all our blind spots, all our questions, none of them. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 35 and 37. Beloved, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews four fifteen. See, Jesus wouldn't play with the offerings. Jesus wouldn't take advantage of women. Jesus is the only perfect man that has ever lived. This is the only man any of us can trust. It's what the Bible's telling us again and again and again. What I said this morning about my wife, I, th- it's very, I, I must admit it's very sweet and very romantic, if I do say so myself, what I said about my wife. Now, here's the thing. The level at which I will fail this woman is unbelievable. Right? I mean, it, it, I don't, I don't want to. I'm not setting out to. But, but even the deepest earthly love for, for another person, like it's, it's, it's not perfect. And, and look, other people are not worthy. I know that sounds awful. But people, look, we are not worthy of the trust we demand from others. There's one man, one, literally, Literally, one human man worth trust that will not take advantage of you, won't ever hurt you, won't ever lie to you, won't ever fail to plan, won't ever do anything like that. And his name is Jesus Christ. That's it. He's it. He's without sin. He's without sin. That's an amazing thing. Our high priest is Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the only person in the universe who has the right to presumptuously take an office and he didn't do it. He was appointed to that office of priest by God to be that forever. And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You and I are not heard because of our reverence. God does not listen to us because we've done well. God listens to us because Christ has done well, and all of it is credited to my account. Right now, it's, it's not, look, it's not John's fault, the lyrics to trust and obey. So please don't hear me putting down John. That's not what I mean at all. But beloved, Jesus trusted and obeyed perfectly. I don't. So, so my, my only hope of happiness is that He has done it for me. That's my only hope of happiness. And being made perfect, 
See, although he was a son, (laughs) he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. That is, believe on his word. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 5, 7 through 10. Did you know that the entire life of Jesus Christ was his service as a priest for you and I. The, the, the whole time, from birth to death to resurrection to ascension, is the life of a priest for his people. And, and it's, it's, it's amazing to consider. We, we get, when you think about it, what, what do we know about Jesus' life? We know some of the details of about three and a half years. We know one thing that happened when he was 12, and we know the events surrounding his birth. That's all we have. We, we, we don't even know everything that he said while he was ministering. During that time, he was being a priest for you and I. He was never sinning. He was never, never taking advantage of who he was. You see the power that Jesus had. If you had the ability to know what people were thinking before they ever said it, do you think you could stay clean with that? Like, you would never use that to your advantage? I would, and I'm the pastor. Like, of course I would. It, it, I mean, it, it's just... And Jesus never, never took advantage of the people to whom He was serving. Not one time. He's the only one that's never abused power. It's just, He's just amazing. He's just amazing. Everything He did, and the way that He did it, He did for His people. You see, mediating for us performing the duties of a high priest perfectly with no selfishness, no error, no regret, no resentment, no evil intentions, and offering up that sacrifice, that perfect life, offering that up as a sacrifice to God and of His perfect blood. See, He doesn't withhold the good meat from the animal. He gives His body to be broken for His people. The whole thing. Offers that up to God. Offers His perfect blood up to God. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who submit to His call to repent and believe the gospel. And His priesthood is forever. You see, it's, it's forever. He's exactly what we need. That's how the, the, that's one way in which the story of Jesus is so different. He dies. It's like, oh, and then three days later, He rises. He's exactly what we need. He's exactly what we need. Uh, If you go back to that, we're never told that we're going to be heard in our loud cries and supplications because of our reverence. Only Jesus earned that. And He earned that for you. He earned that for you. That The priest is a priest for you. His priestly duties are for you. He'll never die. He'll never stop. He'll never fail. He'll never act in such a way that we're dependent on something better. See, there's nothing better than Jesus. You know, it, 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 it's like when you love a band, right? And, and, and they come out with an album and that album is the best thing you've ever heard. And then every other album they release after that is like, it's just not the same. They peaked. You know, they peaked. When Jesus peaked, 
it's not going to get any better. Because it can't. It can't possibly get better than Jesus. So rest tonight, beloved. Rest in Christ tonight. You and I have a better high priest. We have the best high priest. And he will never, ever fail. Believe this. And rest in Christ. I'm going to pray. The front is open when we're finished tonight. If, As we sing, if you need to come and pray, if you need anything, I'll be here. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given to us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect and better and superior and supreme and sufficient high priest, Father. That's who we have. And so, Father, I I praise you tonight for his reverence, for his obedience. It's the only hope that I have, Father, the, the blood of Jesus to forgive me, the righteousness of Jesus to credit my account with what I need to stand justified before you. This is our only hope. It's the hope of everyone in the room, of everyone in Moundsville. Like This is the hope, the only hope that everyone in this town, anyone in this town has, including everyone in this room tonight, Father. So turn our hearts to Jesus. Let us rejoice in his sufficiency and rest in his perfect priestly service on our behalf. For your glory, Father, and our salvation. This I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Stand and sing when when we sing number.